New Orleans, April 1963, after fleeing Dallas, where he had been fired from his job, and after a bungled assassination attempt against a right-wing general and anti-Castro activist, Lee Harvey Oswald had returned to the city of his birth, hoping to turn his life around. But New Orleans, like every other stop in his 23-year life, would also prove to be disappointing. But it would also be dramatic with an arrest, his first real media exposure, and a bizarre hijack plot. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. Oswald stepped off the bus in New Orleans with very little money, no job, and no place to stay. He called his aunt and uncle, Lillian and Charles Murrett, who went by the nickname Dutz. They hadn't heard from Oswald in years, but he was family, and they took him in. The next day, Oswald went to an employment agency. Now, we've established that he was a compulsive liar when filling out forms. He made up phony previous jobs with phony references phony names, and phony addresses. These days, no one could get away with that kind of thing, but this was 1963, a more innocent era. This dynamic, as we'll see down the road, would help explain how Oswald so easily got his job in October at the Texas School Book Depository. Within two weeks, he found work. It wasn't much, just a lowly, menial job, greasing and oiling machinery at the Riley Foods Company. It paid a buck fifty an hour. As he had in Minsk, Fort Worth, and Dallas, Oswald thought that such work was beneath him, but it was the best the high school dropout could do. Just as he had lied to the employment agency, Oswald also lied to his new employer, claiming he had been living in New Orleans for 23 years and that he had only recently gotten out of the Marines. He also claimed that he was a high school graduate. About the only thing he said that was true was his name. Now that Oswald had a job, he found an apartment and sent for his wife and daughter. Remember, Marina and June were living with Ruth Payne at her home in the Dallas suburb of Irving. They packed Ruth's station wagon, and off they went. Prior landlords in New Orleans from years before, Julian and Myrtle Evans, had been so turned off by the Oswalds, by Marguerite and Lee, that they refused to rent to Lee now, but they helped him find an apartment nearby on Magazine Street in a blue-collar neighborhood a few blocks from the Mississippi River. In 1964, just months after President Kennedy's assassination, the new landlord, Jessie Gardner, shared her memories of Oswald with a New Orleans TV station. She had nothing good to say about her now infamous former tenant. Garner, uh... Can you tell us when you first saw Lee Oswald? Well, that was on the 9th of May when he rented the apartment. But uh, did you know anything about him? Uh, Not a thing. Can you tell us uh, what what your impression of him was? What sort of a fellow was he? Well, he was a quiet guy. He didn't pay attention to anybody. He just went on about his business. He never had any friends around there. He didn't talk to anybody. 
He wouldn't even say hello to nobody. He'd just walk straight by with his head up, walk very straight, erect all the time. You'd say then that he wasn't a very friendly person? Not at all. What about his wife? Didn't he have a wife and child, I believe? Yes, he had a, a little Russian wife. She was very cute. And she didn't speak English at all. And she, she'd try to, you know, she'd nod, tell you hello when she'd see you and smile. But that's about all she'd say. She couldn't say anything else. Uh, what about his activities while he uh, lived in the apartment that you rented to him there? Uh, uh, was he employed? I mean, did he go to work every day and come home in the evenings? Or? Well, when he first rented the apartment, he was working at some coffee company on Magazine Street. But the most he worked was about three weeks. Then after that, he didn't work anymore that I know of because he was at home all the time. Garner's memory is a bit off here. Notice... She said that Oswald only worked for about three weeks. In fact, Oswald's job at the Riley Foods Company lasted a bit longer than that, but not much longer. He would be fired on July 19th after just two months on the job. In a prior episode, I mentioned that Oswald was canned from his prior job at Jagger's Child Stovall in Dallas because he was incompetent, had a poor attitude, and did not get along with his colleagues. Apparently, he learned nothing from all that because his bosses now used the very same reasons. Oswald was seen as lazy, incompetent, and a malcontent who did not get along with anyone. There had been so many complaints about Oswald, in fact, that his firing had been contemplated for weeks. But there was more than even all this. His immediate supervisor, Charles LeBlanc, testified in 1964 that Oswald would walk around pointing his forefinger and thumb at people and pretend to shoot them. Pow, Oswald would say, according to LeBlanc. Pow. One reason Oswald was considered lazy is because he often disappeared from his job to hang out at a garage next door that was run by a man named Adrian Alba. Like Oswald, Alba was a gun enthusiast and kept gun magazines lying around. Oswald would frequently leap through them. Alba would testify a year later that he and Oswald would sometimes discuss what kind of bullets would do the most damage to a human. It seems that Oswald, who loved his guns, who nearly killed General Walker months earlier, continued to entertain fantasies about shooting people. Remember, Oswald had come to New Orleans to start over, to find work, only to get fired again after just two months on the job. He would not find work again until October, when, back in Dallas, the unstable Oswald lucked into yet another menial job at the Texas School Book Depository. Conspiracy buffs think it's fishy that he wound up working there. The truth, however, is far more humdrum than that, which I'll explain down the road. I will tell one story about the depository now, though. You might not know that in 1963, the depository actually had two locations in Dallas. The main one had been at 1917 North Houston Street, several blocks north of Dealey Plaza. But in the summer of 1963, operations were being consolidated at the Dealey location at the corner of Elm and Houston Streets. The problem with the Dealey Plaza location, though, was that the upper floors were oily and stained because of a prior tenant. 
The depository's manager, a man named Roy Truly, thought that the oil would penetrate the depository's cardboard book cart. So a decision was made that summer to replace the floors with plywood sheets, where crews would have to move cartons from one side of the vast floor to the other, sometimes stacking them up to allow the floor-laying crew access. By late November, as luck or bad luck would have it, the southern side of the sixth floor, the side overlooking Dealey Plaza, would be a jungle of cartons. Again, stay tuned for more on this. Anyway, Oswald is unemployed again with a wife who's pregnant with their second child. You'd think that the economic pressure of that would motivate him to find a new job. His landlady, Jesse Garner, however, said Oswald didn't do much of anything. He'd sit on a porch and read plenty. Did he ever have any visitors, any people come to see him? Not that I know of. What kind of books did Oswald read? Well, records from the New Orleans Public Library indicate that he was a serious reader. One book he checked out was about Huey Long, who had been Louisiana's governor and a U.S. senator until his assassination in 1935. Oswald also read a biography of China's communist leader, Mao Zedong. Earlier, he had read things like George Orwell's Animal Farm and 1984 and Hitler's Mein Kampf. Records show he also read Portrait of a President, a book about President Kennedy by William Manchester. And talk about delusions of grandeur, Oswald told Marina that in 20 years, he would be president or prime minister of America himself. Of course, Oswald, the high school dropout who fancied himself an intellectual, did not seem to understand that the United States does not have a parliamentary form of government and thus does not have a prime minister, but I digress. Oswald also spent some time with his rifle that summer. Marina Oswald told Priscilla Johnson McMillan, again the author of Marina and Lee, a terrific book, that Oswald would often sit on the porch of their threadbare New Orleans apartment, aim it at imaginary targets, and play with the bolt action. Remember, Oswald had been a sharpshooter in the Marines and, like Every leatherneck knew the rifleman's creed. Here it is again. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. My rifle without me is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. So, in that sultry summer of 1963, Oswald, according to his wife, would work the bolt on his Manlicker Carcano over and over and over again. Here she is, in fact, in her broken English in a 1964 interview. Did you ever uh, know of his practicing shooting before the assassination? Yes, I know this. Frequently? What? Did he practice very often? No. Sometimes. So he practiced sometimes, she says, though the reporter did not ask her to quantify what sometimes meant. More Countdown to Dallas right after this quick break. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. 
In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. With free time on his hands, the unemployed Oswald, who remained an ardent supporter of Fidel Castro, took it upon himself to drum up support for the Cuban regime. He wanted to live in Cuba, which he saw after his disappointing two and a half years in the Soviet Union as a more promising form of communism. Oswald, who was upset with the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba in 1961, remained agitated that President Kennedy continued to vow that Castro's government would be ousted. Here's the president speaking to Cuban freedom fighters in Miami in December 1962. I can assure you that this flag will be returned to this brigade in a free Havana. Oswald wrote up his political activities, identifying himself as a Marxist, a street agitator, and an organizer. He wrote to the New York headquarters of a pro-Castro organization, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, and offered to start a local chapter. He went to a local print shop and, using yet another phony name, Lee Osborne, had some leaflets made up. Hands off Cuba, they blared. Join the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. And he added details about meetings and literature and so forth. He began handing out that literature on the streets. Here's Oswald's actual voice from an interview he would give in August. We have had members in this area for several months now. We have decided to feel out the public uh, what they think of our organization, our aims. And for that purpose, we have been distributing literature on the street. But Oswald's grandiose plans would never bear fruit. Here's Priscilla Johnson McMillan. One day, he asked her to sign a, a card for an organization. And she said, you mean that organization with only one member? And he said, didn't matter how many members it was, it needed two signatures. It would seem as though there were more members. And he told her she was to sign under the name A.J. Heidel. And then she asked him, what's that name? An altered Fidel? And he told her to shut up. Around this time, Oswald also approached a representative of an anti-Castro group. His name was Carlos Bringer. 
Ringier spoke to PBS's Frontline decades later. When Oswald came to my store for the first time, he was explaining how he was against Castro. And he was asking in what way he could help us to fight against Castro. He was telling me that he would have been in the Marine Corps, that he had experience in guerrilla warfare, and that he can help us in the guerrilla fight against Castro. As an apparent gesture of goodwill, or maybe trying to prove his legitimacy, Oswald later gave Bringuer his Marine Corps training book, which showed how to make bombs and conduct sabotage. Oswald's approach to Bringuer has never been fully explained, though the most likely explanation is that Oswald was perhaps just trying to infiltrate what he saw as the opposition. Within days, Oswald and Bringuer would meet again. On August 9th, Oswald was handing out his pro-Castro leaflets. Bringuer was tipped off that someone was doing this. He rushed down with a couple pals, and lo and behold, it was Oswald. It was the same Oswald that has been in my store a few days before offering his service to fight against Castro. And now we were, he was with the sign Viva Fidel and Hands of Cuba. When he recognized me, he smiled at me and he even tried to shake hand with me. I refused to shake hand with him and I started insulting him and cursing him in English. Cops quickly showed up and arrested everyone. Oswald's booking was handled by Officer Frank Wilson. We advised him that the booking procedure, which was a municipal uh, misdemeanor, that he was eligible for posting a bond of $25 in cash or getting a politician to uh, parole him. Uh, he said he didn't, did not want either. He wanted to go to jail. Remember, Oswald had always been an attention seeker, wanted to be famous. He insisted on being photographed and fingerprinted. He seemed to want to uh, let everyone know who he was and what he was doing. So he spent the night in jail. The next morning, and even though he had been leery about dealing with the FBI, he asked to meet with someone from the New Orleans field office. Agent John Quigley soon arrived. This, by the way, was not considered unusual. Quigley said it was, quote, quite normal, unquote, that people in police custody would request to speak with the FBI. But even though Oswald asked to speak with him, Quigley later testified that Oswald's demeanor was antagonistic. Quote, he was certainly not friendly, unquote. Oswald paid a fine and went home. Marina, by now seven months pregnant with their second child, was scared and furious. Where have you been, she grilled him. Over the next few days, she would heap criticism and ridicule upon her unemployed drifter of a husband and his obsession with Cuba and Castro. You're nobody special, she would tell him. You think you're such a great man? This was exactly the kind of mockery that drove Oswald crazy. He believed, really believed, that he was special, that he was destined for greatness. Remember what he said back in the Marines, that he wanted to do something that he would be remembered for 10,000 years later. There's one more thing in this episode that I wanted to mention. Whether you're a conspiracy buff or believe that the preponderance of evidence falls heavily upon Oswald, no one can really study the Kennedy assassination without noticing some rather incredible coincidences. For example, we all know that the president was killed on November 22nd and that Oswald was arrested that 
very same day. But few people know that November 22nd was not the only day that saw both the arrest of Oswald and a death in the Kennedy family. I mentioned that Oswald was busted on August 9th. At the same time, 1,500 miles to the north, President and Mrs. Kennedy were struck by tragedy. Though the prayers of millions accompanied him as he was rushed from his Cape Cod birthplace to the Boston Children's Hospital, the newborn son of President and Mrs. Kennedy is dead, the victim of a lung ailment that made it impossible for him to continue breathing. The president had been holding his son's tiny fingers when he died. He retreated to a nearby boiler room and broke down in sobs. He then faced the awful burden of having to inform his wife, Jacqueline, that their son was dead. In their shared grief, a shattered Jacqueline would whisper to her husband, quote, there's just one thing I couldn't stand, she said, if I ever lose you. To which John F. Kennedy replied, I know, I know. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Also, sound from the archives of WDSU-TV and Movie Tone News. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.